This podcast is presented to you by a new series, the Clergy Confessions Podcast, now available wherever you get your podcast. Listen to ministers share truly awful experiences in anonymity. In this first season, you will hear stories of a minister fighting for maternity leave deep into her pregnancy, a pastor being fired for discovering an embezzlement scheme by the deacon board, an associate pastor finding his senior pastor and office administrator having an affair on church property, and so much more. Visit clergyconfessions.com. Follow Clergy Confessions on Instagram, Facebook, and whatever Twitter's called now. We're going to dig deeper into that latter part of your uh, response here in just a few moments. You know, I, I love that you brought cognitive and, and social psychology into the conversation by talking about that some of us were made this way, you know, due to the levels of serotonin and dopamine regulating genes within our brains. Many are born with a higher proclivity towards sensitivity and, and empathy. Why is that important for this conversation? Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Edna Hale, your podcast host. This year we're celebrating our eighth year on the podcast, bringing you better interviews with your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online and share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF Podcast community through our CBF Podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We also want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including the Honorable Charles Qualls, Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Trip Hawthorne, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. Thanks for listening, Little Rock, Arkansas, Pittsburgh, PA, Ashburn, Virginia, West Yellowstone, Montana, Tamworth, Australia, and Hamilton, Canada. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. And before we move on, we need to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Zondervan Media Company, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, A Model Ministry, and Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. Finally, and I promise this is it. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. The Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity aims to equip, nurture, encourage, and support men and women for their best service in the kingdom of God. Offering several programs, including master's and doctoral levels, you'll be equipped and encouraged to discover the unique place where your faith reaches out to meet the needs of the world. Now enrolling for fall of 2023. For more information about Gardner-Webb Divinity Program scholarships and grants, call 704-406-3205 and visit gardner-webb.edu. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dorcas Chang Tozen. She is the editor-director of PAX, a Christian nonprofit, as well as author of several books, including Start, Love, Repeat, and a new book that will be part of our conversation today. Dorcas, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks so much for having me, Andy. So um, I love when we have West Coasters on because I feel like it's just a totally different way of life out there. Uh, so so, so tell, us, 
tell us about your experience as a as a West Coaster. You're also a Stanford, double Stanford grad, right? Yes, yes. So I am a San Francisco Bay Area native, have spent most of my life here. Um, it's a pretty amazing place, even having been here for so many years. I am not tired of it. And there are still so many pockets of beauty and culture and just fascinating places to discover. Um, so I love that we are close to the ocean. We're close to the mountains. We've got pretty much everything here. Yeah, I love the Bay Area. It's just so expensive. Uh, it is. I mean, yes. over the years, it's just gotten like astronomically expensive. But there is, I mean, the richness of the history around the Bay Area, but then also as an outdoorsman, the the number of uh, national and state parks that are in that area mm -hmm. is, is absolutely amazing. So um, yes, there this are is not a plug so for tourism parks. for California, but you know, they, they're gladly can sponsor this if they want to. Right. <laughs> Um, tell us about your work with with PAX. What, what is the organization and, and what do you do? So PAX is a Christian nonprofit where we provide content and programming that is really to support the contemplative formation of churches and Christ followers. And our focus is specifically on trying to reach young adults, Gen Z, millennials, um, and especially people of color who oftentimes don't have a lot of church resources that are specifically focused on their experience. And so that is a need that we are particularly trying to meet. And you do a good bit of the writing and editing and outward kind of facing material for that. Um, yes. That, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I'm always fascinated for folks that kind of take the vision of an organization and the work that's done and kind of capture that in, in story and narrative form. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a, a gift to be able to do it. I, I love writing, have loved writing for pretty much my whole life. And so the opportunity to write content, words, ideas, um, Bible studies that could be transformational for people is just an incredible opportunity and I'm so grateful for it and I get to work with a fantastic team um, most especially my uh, colleague Mondo Scott who is our creative director and so uh, we have a very heavy emphasis on beauty and art so he does all of the beautiful design and works with artists and commissions their work and then and then I supplement with the words and we put it all together into something really lovely and meaningful. So speaking of things that are lovely and meaningful, you have a new book, uh, Social yeah. Justice for the Sensitive Soul. This book examines how we can change our world in quiet ways. Um, you wrote, mm -hmm. there are plenty of places and spaces for sensitive, uh, em em empathic, quiet, and introverted change agents. We are collectively holding ourselves back if we fail to embrace the unique and wonderful gifts, talents, perspectives, ideas, and approaches that sensitive people have to offer. What was the inspiration behind this book? This book is actually really personal to me. It attempts to answer a question that I have been wrestling with for pretty much my entire adult life. So starting in college, I just found this really deep love and passion for social justice work and felt very called into that space. And so I've been working in the nonprofit sector and social enterprise sector for 
you know, about 20 years now. And yet I always had trouble figuring out how to do it in a way that was sustainable. So I, early on in my career, fell into this pattern of burning out very regularly, pretty much every two years. It was like clockwork. I would I would work for an organization for two years and then burn out and then need to take a break and then start over again. And um, and the burnouts actually got progressively worse. They It's not that my tolerance grew. Um, it, it actually became much harder over time. I felt like um, my propensity for anxiety, for depression, for kind of carrying on the burdens of the work that I I was doing and all of the the suffering and hardship that I was encountering, it it just became heavier over time. And so there was this deep soul question within me of how is it possible that I feel so called to this work? It feels exactly like who I am and what I was made to do. And yet it's also causing me so much harm physically, you know, emotionally. And that just didn't it seemed like there was this significant missing piece. And and it was actually the summer of 2020 when I was approached by my publisher, Broadleaf, at the time. And I didn't have a prior relationship to them. They just sort of cold called me and said, hey, we're interested in working with you. If you were to write another book, what would it be about? And I said, I don't know, give me some time to think about it. And I went on a long walk and you know this summer of 2020 so this is right at the start of the pandemic and so going on a long walk was pretty much the only thing that i could do here in the barrier because everything was shut down and so i i went outside went on a walk and was just thinking about everything that was going on around me right so we had the pandemic we had all of the inequities in income and jobs and transportation and public health that we were seeing because of the pandemic. The Black Lives Matter protests were in full swing after the murder of George Floyd. Um, I am Chinese American, so as an Asian American, it was a time of really heightened fear for us because there was so much going on in terms of anti Asian racism and hatred and acts of violence, many of which were happening here in the Bay Area where I live. And, and so it felt like the world was burning and it was just breaking my heart. And then there was part of me that was really scared to get involved because there was a sense of every time I've gotten involved and I've tried to do something to make the world better, I've been burned. You know, I've, I've, been exhausted. I've um, I've developed chronic anxiety. You know, uh, it's become really hard to balance it with taking care of my kids and other things. And so, so then, you know, it probably was a moment of divine inspiration. Where as I was pondering all of these things, um, the title of the book just came into my head as an articulation of this is the sole question that I want to answer is social justice for the sensitive soul. How is that possible? How does that look? Um, and if I have wrestled with this for so long, I'm sure that I am not the only one. Mm-hmm. And so I brought the idea to the publisher. They really liked it. And, you know, three years later, here we are. You wrote, with those gifts, sensitive people tend to go all in with social justice efforts, which inevitably puts yes. our hearts on the line. 
as we do, we encounter historical forces, systemic forces, social forces, dogmatic forces, political forces, and individual forces that resist a more equitable distribution of rights, resources, power, and privilege. Talk to us about some of these forces and how they most commonly uh, express themselves. Well, I think social media is probably the clearest, most tangible example of this and something that we have all experienced to some degree, right? You see the hostility, the debates, the um, the personal nature that that some of us can take on if if someone posts something about a topic they care deeply about, um, tries to take a stance for something, it is almost inevitable that somebody will push back. And it's not that, I actually think, you know, debate is wonderful. It's really healthy. It's absolutely a good thing to have your views challenged and to have to answer questions and, and to be able to understand why you believe what you believe. Um, but, but as I think all of us have seen there, um, there is not necessarily the desire for actual healthy, respectful debate a lot of times, right? It's about tearing people down and it's about, you know, belittling them and shaming them and, and trying to exert your, um, your dominance over them. And I think regardless of which side of the political spectrum you're on, regardless of which side of particular issues you're on, I think every side is guilty of this. Um, but I think that whenever you enter into the social justice arena, a lot of these are very sensitive topics, right? If we are talking about equity, inclusiveness, of wanting things to be more fair, it is pretty much inevitable that somebody is going to feel like they're being asked to sacrifice, that they're being asked to give up something that they have. And that makes people really uncomfortable. And so it can sometimes be our human nature to just want to fight that and to fight that with with hostility and with anger and in a way where we are maybe almost dehumanizing our opponents. Um, and I think that that's really, really unfortunate. In the book, I talk about how there's just this larger culture of activism, again, on every side of the political spectrum, that is primarily fueled by this desire to confront people and to get in their face and to be hostile with them. Um, when really, you know, the way of Jesus, the way of the church um, is about love first. <laughs> and so I actually feel like you know, you mentioned the gifts of the sensitive, empathic people. I think that is one of the greatest gifts that we bring is just this innate ability to look at someone regardless of who they are and what they believe and to see them as our fellow human being first, to see them as somebody made in the image of God. And and I think that we all sort of need a reset and um, and and to revisit that and to remember you know, we're not going to get very far as as a society, as communities, if we're not willing to actually have meaningful dialogue with one another, if we're not um, engaging with one another in a way where we genuinely care about the other person and we want what's best for them. And it's not about winning the fight. Um, and and so I think, you know, that's that's very pervasive today. Um, and so it, it is one of the things that that individuals who are trying to do social good, they come up against that 
Um, and, you know, I, I think that we can see from many examples in history, um, the civil rights movement is probably the most well-documented movement in, in recent memory. And, and we see the many examples of elected officials, of the courts, of ordinary citizens who fought against change and sometimes did so in very, very violent ways because um, because they didn't want to give up their power. So um, so it is, it's very risky to enter into spaces where you're challenging the status quo. And yet, you know, as as people who believe in goodness and righteousness and justice, that that's where we're called to be. And then I think the ultimate question is, how do we do it in a way that is true to who we are and that still allows us to flourish to some degree um, where we're not just, you know, completely sacrificing ourselves and letting ourselves be ground to dust, which I think is what a lot of activists tend to do. Um, but I, I don't believe that that is the full vision of, of how God wants us to pursue justice, that it it is um, not just about our sacrifice, but it is about the mutual thriving of everybody together. We can't go any further without telling about one of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. How does your congregation handle ministry staff leadership for areas such as youth and children's ministry? More and more churches are cultivating these leaders from within their congregations. Going away to seminary is not an option for these persons, yet many desire some level of theological education to better prepare them for their ministry role. In response to this trend, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has launched the Homegrown Initiative. The Homegrown Initiative offers ministry leaders options for training and growth that fits into their busy schedules. If you or someone else at your church is serving as a homegrown minister and is looking to be better equipped as a minister, visit bsk.edu to learn more about new creative options for growth. bsk.edu. That's bsk.edu. We're going to dig deeper into that latter part of your response here in just a few moments. You know, I love that you brought cognitive and, and social psychology into the conversation by talking about that some of us were made this way, you know, due to the levels of serotonin and dopamine regulating genes within our brains. Many are born with a higher proclivity towards sensitivity and, and empathy. Why is that important for this conversation? For me personally, there were many years where I just wondered, what is wrong with me? <laughs> because I looked all around and so many of my colleagues, and I will count my husband among this as well, because he and I have served together. We He started a social enterprise. We moved to China together. And we endured a lot of the same hardships, challenges, stresses together and he and other colleagues I've had, they sort of seemed okay with it. Like they were just able to hang with it. And it had a huge effect on me. And so there was just a sense of how come they can do it and I can't. Um, and, and so it can be very easy to blame yourself and to feel like you are deficient in some way. And the assurance that I want to offer to fellow sensitive souls, fellow empaths, is that this is who you are. You know, it, it's been shown through research that our brains are just wired differently. Um, I see it in my kids. You know, they're 11 and 5 now, but they they have definitely inherited my sensitivity, you know, just from the time they were infants. You know, they were very sensitive to loud noises and 
bright lights and particular tastes and smells. Um, and and so to just accept that that you have been made in this particular way and that it wasn't an accident, it is a, a beautiful thing. I think we, especially here in the US, just tend to live in a culture where we really look up to those more, you know, outspoken, bold, aggressive types. We see those um, types of individuals as leaders and as strong people. And yet there is so much strength in our sensitive um, friends among us and and so many gifts of their ability to connect with others, of their ability to notice what is if something is wrong, if something is off, if somebody is not being included, their intuitive ability to know when somebody is suffering and having a hard time, those are all really remarkable gifts to bring to communities, to organizations, to families. And I think it these individuals serve as the, the relational glue that kind of holds us all together. And so we absolutely need them in every aspect of society and we um we certainly need them in justice work you know uh, thinking through um kind of as, as we talk about those that kind of have a higher proclivity towards sensitivity and, and empathy um you know just because some of us are are made with higher levels of of you know uh, serotonin dopamine that kind of lean us into this work doesn't mean we're not all called through our faith in Jesus to be agents of social change, right? Right, right. I mean, I would hope that we all, to some extent, engage with some measure of social change. But but what I, the case that I am trying to make in my book is that it doesn't have to all look the same way. It doesn't have to be a 24-7 activity that you are engaged in because the reality is that we are human <laughs> and we we have limitations. And I think that it's really important for us to recognize and to honor those limitations. I have certainly found that the more I recognize my own limitations, the more I can respect the limitations of others. And so it actually allows me to approach anything I do in a more humane way. Um, and so you know, how, how you engage in this work, it can be, um, I do believe that there can be this very real alignment with who you are, what you love to do, what are your particular interests, what are the kinds of activities that really give you life. Um, it It is very much the case that those same things can align with the goodness of the work of justice. You know, um, one of my favorite statistics that I came across in my research for this book was organizational psychologist Adam Grant did. He looked over more than 500 studies that had been done, and they were all studies that were about people sitting down, having a one-on-one -on -one face face-to-face conversation with somebody else. And so this is somebody that they didn't know, this was uh, not over Zoom, not over, right? It's just, it's in-person, face-to-face. And it wasn't about debating the other person. It wasn't about trying to win them over to your side or your cause. It was really about, let's just get to know one another and let's just converse. And across those more than 500 studies, 
just the simple act of having that conversation with somebody who is different from you, from a different background, maybe different ethnicity, different socioeconomic status, different country, 94% of the time, that was enough to help reduce prejudice and bias. And so I feel like that's something that we're all capable of doing. We are all capable of just simply having a conversation with somebody else and, and getting to know them, showing them that we're curious about them, that we really are present and engaged with them. And, and so I think it, it then um, almost lowers the bar or at least makes the entry point much more realistic for us, regardless of your personality type or, you know, how introverted you are, um, there are meaningful things that we all can do that can contribute to the dignity of others. You know, you also identified that those with a higher inclination towards sensitivity and empathy also have a proclivity towards exhaustion, burnout, or even despair. Uh, take mm -hmm. us a little deeper into the emotional toll of social justice when you're running into these kinds of forces. Yeah, well, I think it, so, you know, empaths, those of us who, I, I think, you know, most humans have some degree of empathy that they experience, but people who are highly empathic um, really do have this ability to almost feel what another person is feeling, right? And so the, the grief, the anger, the sorrow, the loss, the stress of somebody else, um, empaths just tend to absorb that. And the more you expose yourself to that, the more you absorb. And there's a lot of overlap with highly sensitive people. So um, so highly sensitive people, they they notice it, they sense it and to a certain degree they they also absorb it and and we're all talking on you know there is a range of of how highly sensitive uh, people are some are more sensitive some are a little bit less and same with empathy some have more empathy some have a little bit less um but generally speaking there there is this um sort of just burdening that happens that you take on whatever it is that you encounter or if you attend a protest or a march and there's a lot of shouting and there's a lot of anger and then you run into counter protesters and there's conflict all of that um negative harsh angry energy gets absorbed and then um there is also the very real risk of secondary trauma and this is a risk for anybody, regardless of whether or not you're highly sensitive or or highly empathic. But if you encounter people who have experienced trauma and you're hearing their stories, maybe you're you're trying to support them, you're offering them services, it is very possible that you yourself can experience a form of trauma just from kind of experiencing it with them right like alongside them being um being close to somebody who has um, gone through something so difficult and and so then at some point it very easily can become too much 
if we are not really careful about being intentional about resting, about doing activities that restore us, about giving ourselves mental and emotional breaks, um, and even being conscientious to some degree about what we expose ourselves to, what we let ourselves engage in. So one very simple example is that as I've gotten older and I've become more aware of how sensitive I am, I've actually started to limit my news intake. So I actually kind of a news junkie. I love knowing what's going on. That is very much a trait of highly sensitive people. We love collecting knowledge. <laughs> um, but I have realized that, especially I think listening to the radio um, and listening to uh, podcasts, watching things on TV, that actually has an even higher emotional impact on me than reading the news. So at this point, I limit myself to primarily reading the news instead of watching or listening to it. And even then, there are some articles that I read the headline and I'm like, okay, I, I don't think I'm going to be able to handle that today or maybe not ever. Um, there have been times where I've been reading artic news articles and I just come away with a stomach ache, like my chest is super tight, at, just, just simply reading about the hardship and suffering of others um, is it's something I can't look away from and it's not something I can ignore. It's something I physically feel in my body and that my emotions, you know, very much come to the surface. And so for any, any individuals who, um, who identify as sensitive, I think, I think that that's, it's a similar experience of, we just need to know there are some things that are going to hit us really, really hard and to be aware of how much of that you can um, you can expose yourself to if you want to remain healthy and be able to still be available for your family and loved ones and continue to engage with um, the work you care about. You know, there's kind of mitigating those feelings when they're happening, but, you know, alternatively, um, you talk about in the book how people can build resiliency. Um, what does that look like practically? Yeah, well, I went into, I remember that was actually one of the hardest chapters to write in the book because part of me almost had a bit of doubt going in of, is it possible for someone like me to be resilient? Because I feel like I've been beaten down so many times and each time, it gets harder to get up instead of me feeling like I'm able to do uh, manage things better. But the the definition of resilience that I came across, which was so helpful for me, was not the typical idea of like, you know, you you get knocked down and then you just bounce right back up and you dust yourself off and you keep going. But it is actually resilience from a psychological perspective is really about having confidence in who you are and what you are meant to do. So, so knowing what your purpose is and being able to hold on to that, even when the circumstances around you are changing wildly, or even when there are very significant challenges going on around you. Because when we have that core sense of identity and purpose, that allows us to remain really grounded um, despite what may be happening to or around us. I think resilience also is so much about being connected to a good support network. 
It's about going through really healthy processes of working through stresses and hardships because we are all going to make mistakes. We're going to come up against times when we've had a really difficult interaction. Something's gone terribly wrong. And, and so we will need to process through that. And our willingness to do that, our willingness to seek out mentors and counselors and pastors and others who will walk us through that and to learn from that um, will will all help us in terms of our ability to to remain um, to remain grounded in in who we are and what it is that we feel is most important for us to spend our time and energy on. When we think of social justice, we tend to think of tremendous figures, you know, Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., Doris Day, Mother Teresa, Walter Rauschenbusch, Nelson Mandela, Desmond Tutu. But for every catalytic figure, there are people behind the scenes doing the day-to-day operations of social justice. Mm -hmm. Why is it important for us to recognize the contribution of non-figureheads of social justice? I think that there can be this, I, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but I think it is very common for people to see these leaders and these figures who are remarkable people um, and to feel like we all need to look like that. We all need to live like that. And it makes sense because those are the individuals that we tend to hear the most about. They're the ones who have so many books written about them and they're all over the headlines and they're on the covers of magazines. Um, And, you know, I I cite Parker Palmer in my book as somebody who very much like me also looked to those figures and was like, oh, that is who I have to be. You know, it it becomes the, the archetype of if you want to pursue social justice, it has to look like this. But that's not the reality. And I think it's actually really unhealthy to some degree for us all to aspire to be like these few people, right? For one thing, we don't need a billion people acting like Gandhi um, or being Gandhi, right? We we may need a few Gandhis and then we need so many other people around them. Um, and so I, I think of them as, you know, if you look at somebody like Dr. King, he was a tremendous leader. He was incredibly important to the civil rights movement. At the same time, everything that he did was built upon the scaffolding of the contributions of tens of thousands of other people, right? People who served as artists and writers and um, accountants and administrative people, organizers. It is only because of them that Dr. King's message could be so well amplified. You know, if he was on his own (laughs) trying to do the same thing, it just wouldn't have had the same impact at all. And, And so I really, my heart is for people to know that there is a place for you in justice movements that, you know, if you are so gifted to be the next Dr. King, that is incredible. <laughs> and if you are not, that is also incredible. That's wonderful because we need people in every aspect of society, in every sector, in every industry um, who are willing to work toward um, human rights, who are willing to work toward civil rights equity, inclusion, dignity, all of these things um, 
and we need we need people who are willing to bring a huge array of gifts to the table because so many of these challenges that we're dealing with right so whether it be education access or technology access or racism um, any of these things they are incredibly complex problems that are deeply entrenched into the the systems and cultures that we all reside in and so of course it would make sense that we need to address those from so many different angles and we need people who are willing to do that um the the marches and the protests those are great i think they very much have a place they can be very effective and that alone is not necessarily going to be what moves us forward we are pausing to tell you about one of our collaborative annual sponsors, A Model Ministry. Are you a church leader who's committed to keeping children safe? If so, then A Model Ministry is for you. We are a registered nonprofit organization specializing in safety education, policy writing, and risk assessment to mitigate child abuse in ministry organizations. We understand that child safety is a top priority for churches, and we are here to create a safe and nurturing environment for all children. Our founders can provide the resources and support needed to implement effective child safety policies and procedures. Visit amodelministry.com to learn more about our services and how we can help keep children safe. Since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. As you examine these different forms of participation in social justice work, you wrote, there is no need to be an ideal activist. No one is an ideal activist. Instead, we can each be an activist exactly as we are. Sensitive souls can unhesitatingly embrace the traits of us that nudge us towards healthier, more authentic approaches to changing the world. What are some of the practical discernment tips you can give for people working through the the shedding of what ideal social justice advocate looks like? Yeah, well, let me just talk a minute about what that even is. So I, I spent a couple of chapters talking about the this activist ideal that many of us hold in our heads whether we're aware of it or not and it has actually been well documented by social science researchers that this is a real thing um that among activists there tends to be these incredibly high expectations of commitment and dedication so you know if you're going to be an activist you need to be an activist 24 7 you need to do things in a certain way and to a, a certain degree and there are um there are organizations where they don't have a single conversation about self-care i think um, in one of the studies i looked at it was more than half of people who work in the nonprofit sector have never had a conversation with a supervisor or colleague 
about what self-care looks like. And in some circles, the idea of self-care, of resting, of even taking time off, of taking a weekend off, is derided and looked down upon as and seen as a lack of commitment, when really it's just about being human, right? And honoring our humanity and our need for rest and, and Sabbath, because that's who we were created to be. And so there was so much pressure to act in a certain way and to be just a thousand percent dedicated to a cause regardless of any cost, any personal costs, any cost to your family, your community, you're supposed to just ignore all that and just keep on going for the sake of the cause. And it's just not realistic and it's incredibly, incredibly unhealthy. And I find it so grievous that in an area of work um, and service that is really supposed to be all about caring for people, loving people, wanting the best for people. We've almost forgotten how to do that for ourselves and for one another. And, and I think that for us to be able to be fully authentic activists with full integrity, um, we need to be people who value the humanity in everyone around us, ourselves, our colleagues, our peers, our fellow activists, those we're serving, those who don't agree with us, right? Um, and to recognize that that we are not God, <laughs> we shouldn't put ourselves in the place of God, that we are people who do the best with what we've been given, and then sometimes we need to rest, and sometimes life gets too hard, and we just need to step back, um, and sometimes other priorities will come up, and and it just may not be the season for you to engage in justice work. And that happens, that happens all the time. Almost every activist I looked at, um, and there are, I think more than a hundred that I name in the book, they all had seasons where they took time off, where they rested, where they spent time just thinking or planning or meditating. There are even some folks who would go on silent retreats for months, for years, you know, and, um, because we all need that restoration before we can fully bring our healthiest selves to to the work of justice. The work of justice is so hard that I don't I don't I wouldn't recommend bringing a really unhealthy, broken version of yourself. I mean, certainly we're all unhealthy and broken to some degree, but but if you are able to to give yourself the space to to heal to become more self-aware to become more grounded and rooted in in your faith and your community and um and who you are that will only heighten your ability to be effective in in social change work you raise a, a brilliant question when you wrote the question of when to engage in social justice work is a highly personal one the response will be different for everyone, but for no one should the response be always. For activists to remain healthy and resilient, they require regular times of rest, reconnection with themselves, their loved ones, and, and nature. Can you take us a little deeper there into that question of when and, and why it's so critical for, for this work? Mm -hmm. Well, in large part, that is what you just read is a response to this very heavy expectation we place on activists to just be in the fight 24 seven, no rest, no breaks, no time to reflect. And, 
And yet we are not all living on the same timeline, right? In terms of um, everybody's life, everybody's life journey is, is unique. It's going to look different. And so similar to what I was saying earlier about not necessarily aspiring to be just like Martin Luther King or Gandhi, I don't think it necessarily makes sense for us all to aspire to be that particular activist that is always doing something and never taking a break. Um, one of the things I love about my work at PAX is that we, we are very much about justice and peacemaking, but through the lens of contemplative activism. And it wasn't actually something I was very familiar with until I joined PAX and then it actually made it into the book as well. But this idea that it is the natural rhythm of human beings to engage and then to rest, to engage and then to rest. We see it very clearly in the ministry of Jesus. We see it throughout the Bible where you have individuals who, you know, they go out, they do ministry, and then they rest, and they pray, and they commune with God, and they hang out with their friends. Um, and, and I think that that's a beautiful model for us to follow. I think it's also an incredibly healthy model, that that is what sustains our work over the long term. Because if you look at the statistics today, the typical activist will burn out within two to five years. It it just, it's a fact, it's the way it is. And at any given moment in time, um, about half of individuals who work in the nonprofit sector are either already burned out or on the verge of burning out. And so if you think about the incredible amount of turnover that's happening within organizations, within movements, all of the historical knowledge, institutional knowledge, all of the lessons learned, all the really valuable experience that is being lost. Because a lot of times when activists and nonprofit workers burn out, they burn out in terms of they have to leave the sector, they have to leave the work altogether because they either are just so exhausted that they can't even imagine going back or they just don't know how to possibly continue to engage in this work in a way that's sustainable. And so I think what, what I would hope for is that many of us could remain throughout our lifetimes, right? Connected to causes that we care really deeply about trying to serve in ways that make sense to us. But we can't do that if we use up all of our energy in just five years, right? But if we spread that effort out over our lifetime, I think that if you just do the math, there's so much more that we are able to contribute. And I would also add that as much as I admire and appreciate and value the energy that young people, young adults, students bring to social change, they alone cannot do this, right? We need people from all generations, from all ages to contribute. And I love the idea of, of older people coming in who have so much wisdom to bring, who have so much experience to bring, um, working alongside, marching alongside younger activists, um, because I think that just makes our overall efforts so much more impactful and, um, and effective because we have this 
collective wisdom and experience that we can bring to the table. Um, and But in order to have those folks who are older and have more experience, we need them to be able to stay. And in order for them to stay, they need to engage in ways that um, that are sustainable, that allow them to pace themselves and to not feel like they have to just burn all of their fuel in a few years, but but they will have time to refuel and then and then step back into the arena. Let's take a break to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work. What is social work? At Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, it's empowerment, service, and justice. It's ministry, counseling, and relationship building. It's faith, practice, and community. But above all, it's learning how to help others thrive. Social workers can be found addressing the full scope of the human experience in churches, schools, prisons, government agencies, senior living centers, nonprofits, and Fortune 500 companies. Careers in social work profession are vast and varied. What is social work, you ask? It's much more than you think. Visit gsswstories.baylor.edu to explore more. In the last couple of years, um, I've seen an upward trend of those adding to their social media bios uh, as advocate of fill in the blank. Um, mm. Everyone seems to be an advocate of something these days. <laughs> um, and I'm reminded of a line from Hamilton. Uh, if you stand for nothing, Burr, what will you fall for? There is social pressure to be an advocate, but how do people discern what to be an advocate for? Yeah, that is such a great question. I think one of the greatest insights that I have gotten over my 20 years doing this work. Well, if so if you look at my resume, <laughs> so if you go on LinkedIn and you look at my profile, you will see that to some degree, my career trajectory does not really make sense. So part of it is because of all these burnouts, um, but I have worked for quite a number of different organizations. Every single one has been different. Everyone has focused on a different cause. And so I, I do wanna encourage people to maybe not put the pressure on themselves to feel like, oh, I have to find my one thing you know, or maybe my two or three top things. And this, this is the cause that I am going to become the advocate for and be able to put in my profile, right? On all my social media accounts. Um, I think it is okay. Well, for one thing, I think it's okay to just be in searching mode and to let yourself do that for as long as you need to do. I, um, because I do believe that when we wonder about what, what causes might feel connected to us. My hope is that that actually nudges you to go out and to talk to people and to try different service opportunities and to learn about different organizations. And all of that seeking is a really valuable process. It is not wasted time at all because I think it grows us in our understanding of different issues, of what's going on around us, of what other people are doing, as well as ourselves. Um, and, and this journey of self-awareness, self-understanding, it's a lifelong journey. And so just like, you know, we don't know the totality of who we are by the time we're 30 years old, it's okay to also recognize that you may not know what your cause is by the time you're 30 or 40 or 50. Um, and even if at one point you have one cause, that may change. 
And, and so I think that there is this openness I would encourage people to have of like, just be open to what you're seeing, what you're learning, who you're meeting. Oftentimes, um, as, as I was doing my research and looking at these historical figures, oftentimes they, it was totally by chance. It was serendipitous. It was something, you know, a seemingly random occurrence happened or, um, you know, some, some particular circumstance affected their life. And then that set them on a path toward, um, toward fighting for a particular cause. Right. And so it's, um, it is sometimes about what we make of it. And I think sometimes it's also about just being willing and open and having our eyes and ears alert to, to what's happening around us and what opportunities may be opening up to us. Um, and I think it's also totally worth it to just to try things, to experiment. There's this book that I really appreciate called Designing Your Life. And it's written by these two Stanford professors from the design school there. And so they are all about applying design principles to uh, figuring out your life of what am I most passionate about? What is What career do I want to pursue? How do I want to balance that with my family or my hobbies and my other loves? And, and while their book is not specifically about social, social justice work, I think it's still a really valuable perspective because it is very much about, um, they talk about wayfaring, where, you know, you're on the sea and you have this general direction of where you think you're going, but you don't actually totally know exactly how you're going to get there. And, um, and so I think that that's a really helpful analogy of we don't have to have it all figured out. Um, I, I think it is important and helpful to do the work of trying to understand yourself, of recognizing your personality traits, what really interests you, what you love to do, what just kind of gives you joy and makes you feel alive. Um, so yes, absolutely do that work. Um, but also, also let yourself have the space to just ponder and explore and wonder and ask questions um, because I think you never know where that will lead and and in all likelihood it'll probably lead you somewhere surprising which not all of us are comfortable with but um, but I think it's actually a really beautiful beautiful journey that you can find yourself on um, and and it is in the unpredictability of that journey that I think God can do a really good work in us and through us. The last thing I want us to turn our attention to is the generational gaps around social justice. You know, within many of our churches, there are tremendous generational um, tensions, you know, or mm. there are, ten there is tension, you know, for many churches, they lack generational tension because younger or older generations have, have quit. Um, there mm. seems to be a generational divide of, you know, on matters of social justice with one generation caring more about certain issues than others, or one generation views how you mitigate these issues over how another generation sees what actions should be taken. How do we navigate the generational tension around social justice within our churches? Hmm. Well, I would imagine that that's not a new phenomenon, right? I think um, throughout history in every every generation you've had 
these debates ongoing, even people who who care about the same cause, like you said, right? They may they may care about the same thing. They may want to see the same results. And yet how to get there is just um, they may feel like they're on opposite ends or or they may care about very different things. And um, I think that it is the responsibility of all of us, no matter our age, to be willing to hear out folks who see things differently from us. Um, you know, so I'm in my 40s now, so I feel like I'm squarely, you know, in the middle. <laughs> and it's becoming easier now for me to recognize uh, the perspectives to value and appreciate um, the perspectives of people who are both younger than me, but also those who are older than me, because as I'm getting closer to, um, to an older age, it, I can kind of see like, oh, okay, this is, this has been their life experience. This is what, what they're worried about. Um, and then, you know, it, having come out of <laughs> my young adult years, right. And, and empathizing with where, they are coming from as well. Um, and so so I think that's that's where we start is we start with listening and just being willing to hear one another out, being willing to recognize that I have my perspective, there's validity in my perspective, but it doesn't necessarily mean that my perspective makes sense to everybody else or that it makes sense for the whole of this church. Right, especially if we're talking about as a church, where are we going to in, invest our resources, our money, our time, our ministry opportunities? Um, and so, it you know, I don't think that there is a perfect formula to how to do this, but the the foundation of it is in mutual respect, is in loving one another in wanting to still be community together, right? And and also I think recognizing that there can be a lot of health in disagreements. It, you don't want your church to be a monolith. You don't want everyone to think exactly the same thing and and value the same thing, right? We, we want the diversity of gifts. We want the diversity of interests and callings. And so wouldn't we also want the diversity of people caring for different causes and different issues. Um, and, and it may require some wise, <laughs> wise people in the church helping to facilitate conversations and trying to figure out are there compromises we can make, not in the sense of what we value or what we believe in, but compromises in terms of, well, maybe this season we focus on this issue. And next season, we focus on a different issue. Um, and, and I think to, to show up for one another, that that's really meaningful too, right? So I've definitely had church experiences where, even aside from justice issues, right, you can have silos of, oh, you have the prayer team, and you have the music team, and you have the... Um, you know, children's ministry, and you have the youth group, and and they're not necessarily talking to each other. And and sometimes, you know, when things get bad, they're not even necessarily rooting for each other. It becomes a competition of resources instead. And so I think, you know, to hold on to that idea of we are still one church, we are still one body. And even if your cause is not a cause I feel particularly strongly about, if this is the direction that our church 
is going or just simply because I value you as a member of my church community, I'm still going to show up. You know, it, it may feel uncomfortable, it may be stretching, um, but there's a lot of value, I think, in all of us being willing to step outside of what is known and comfortable and familiar to us and to be willing, especially for the sake of somebody else and for the sake of our community, to take those risks and to try something new. Because again, I think it is similar to the the personal journey of you don't know where that journey will take your church. And, and I think to be open to God could be doing something really, really beautiful here, both within the the church itself, with the relationships across generations and across peers, across ministries, as well as the connections that you are making in the community and in the broader world. And so to not underestimate the value of, of just reaching out and, and showing up for one another and being willing to hear one another out and, and to demonstrate that what matters to you is something that I care enough about, that I will take the time to listen, I will use my energy to participate, um, and I will be open to, to growing my heart in this same way. Our guest is Dorcas Chang Tozen. The book is Social Justice for the Sensitive Soul. You can stay connected with her by visiting changtozen.com. Dorcas, it's been an honor conversing with you. Thank you for challenging us to see that when the sensitive and empathic among us are able to find themselves and share for the sake of humanity, the world can't help but become a little bit more bright and beauteous. Thank you so much for having me, Andy. This has been wonderful. We are grateful for a chance to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Zondervan Media Group. Explore the depth and beauty of scripture with the NRSV updated edition. With provisions based on new contextual evidence, historical insights, and linguistic precision, this updated edition of the NRSV delivers a translation of scripture based on meticulous care for accuracy and readability. Learn more about new editions of the NRSV UE from Zondervan at nrsvuebible.com. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Gardner Webb University School of Divinity, a model ministry, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, and Zondervan Media Company. Check out more at cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and more. And I'm not sure if we mentioned that you should join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.